So we're going to jump right in. I'm not going to waste any time. We're going to jump right in. So in short, we've been in a series. Uh, it's about third week, fourth week in a series that we're basically describing uh, and talking about the wisdom of the Bible, what the Bible's all about. If you have been with us for any length of time, you know that we have been uh, beginning 2018 uh, in Gauging what we're calling the year of biblical literacy, uh, which is an attempt to uh, read through the entire Bible from January to December. Um, and many of you guys are part of that, doing that. Um, it's two things. It's one, it's a through the Bible reading plan that you do as an individual, but it's also one that we're encouraging you to do in the context of community. We've got lots of community groups, we call them. These are small groups, home Bible studies, whatever you want to call them. Uh, you can go to our website, um, and what we're encouraging you to do is to get involved in a small group, and there's a lot of small groups that are actually going through the Year of Biblical Literacy curriculum. There's a whole curriculum for it, so as you read through Scripture, and as you come together throughout the week to study Scripture, to pray, to uh, help each other love Jesus better, uh, you have this incredible, unique mixture or combination that will help you become one that is more devoted to Jesus and understanding what it means to really follow Christ. And uh, so what we have been stating is that at the beginning of the year, uh, for the next like two months, two and a half months, now we're almost about, two, we're almost about a month into it, so we got about another month and a half left, uh, we're doing a series of teachings. Uh, the first series of teachings is really kind of a series of teachings about the Bible or about how to help you understand Scripture. The aim of this is to try to equip you with tools and instruments so that you can best read Scripture and understand Scripture. Um, next week, I have a really good friend of mine, Jamie Pappas. Some of you guys might know him. He's uh, uh, the leader, director of uh, Crew, um, and he'll be here teaching next week. I'm really excited about the message that he's going to share with you guys. Uh, the big technical geeky, Bible geeky term is called hermeneutics. Um, it just simply means the art or the act of learning how to interpret and understand Scripture. So next week will be really crucial. If you've ever tried to understand and read the Bible and you've had a hard time understanding how to do that, uh, Jamie will do an outstanding job at giving you tools to understand how to do that. So the second teaching series that we're going to be jumping into as soon as we're done with this one is really a series on the entire overview of the whole arc of Scripture, or in other words, the story of God from Genesis to Revelation. We'll look at basically every, not every book, obviously, not every book or, or verse, but in a sense we will from a 30,000-foot view. In other words, we'll be looking down at the big large, overarching narrative of Scripture itself. So again, we've been saying this all along, is that many of us are familiar with some of the small stories in Scripture, and we look at those small stories, and sometimes we ask the question, how in the world does that small story connect, or does it even connect with any other larger, overarching narrative in the Bible? And uh, that's what we'll be looking at this time around, is looking at the overarching view. And uh, for me personally, that has been a huge help in my understanding of Jesus and the scripture. So I would say this, I got saved in a church that loved to teach the Bible, loved to study even words in the Bible. So it would not have been uncommon to sit through a Bible study and the entire Bible study, 45 minutes, is one word. And that's awesome. I, don't, I, I loved it. I enjoyed it. I'm a total Bible geek slash nerd. I enjoy reading, studying, doing anything have, having to do with the scripture. And yet, it's very easy to focus on one word and not have any clue as to how that word or sentence or paragraph or chapter or book fits in the overall story of the Bible. So we believe that's really helpful for you to understand what Scripture is all about. So that's what we'll be looking at the next series coming in. So today, 
what we'll be looking at is really kind of building upon a series of talks or messages that we've had from the beginning of the year. So first message of the year, we had this question that we asked, uh, really, what's the Bible for? What's the aim of Scripture? One of the things that we described and said is to help transform us as we connect with the biblical story. The second question that we asked, which was last week, why read the Bible? What we said in essence, again, I'm just giving you a thumbnail of what we looked at last week, and the reason why we read the Bible, why we encourage you to read the Bible, why we believe as a follower of Jesus we should be engaging with Scripture. Number one, because Jesus loved the Scripture. Jesus was thoroughly uh, connected to, read the Scripture. He even says that his life in its sum totality uh, summarizes, fulfilled, completed this Scripture. And secondly, what we said is that because Jesus' followers follow Jesus, it's as simple as that. In other words, if we claim to follow Jesus, then people who follow Jesus should do the very things that Jesus, their master, to whom the one we owe all of our allegiance to, uh, should, should do. Jesus loves scripture. So therefore, Jesus' people uh, love scripture. And again, I realize for some of us, uh, you aren't, we, we may not be feeling the love. And I get it. I get it. The Bible is a complex book. It's challenging. In fact, what we said last week is that uh, the Bible, we have, our relationship to the Bible is kind of an interesting one. For some, we think of the Bible in terms of like a forced marriage, right? Prearranged marriage that you just wake up one day, you're like, oh, I'm married to this book and it's odd. It's really weird. It endorses polygamy. Uh, it talks about people killing people and knocking others out. And it talks about, you know, a father-in-law having sex with his daughter-in-law. And, and like, how in the world does this crazy story make any sense within my life in year 2018 as a follower of Jesus? I get it. I totally understand how and why this book, as confusing as it can be, uh, could feel like a prearranged marriage that you are forced to somehow have to, at, at least, if anything, make do with, at worst, to somehow, like, like, love. I get it. The second thing we described is that our relationship, in a lot of ways, with Scripture is, like, we don't have the negative, hard, angry feelings towards Scripture. We just don't have any feelings for it. There's just a cold indifference. It's like a cold marriage. It's like a marriage that doesn't have any real deep inner personal relationship or connectedness. Uh, so for some of us, the Bible is sort of this book that is on our bookshelf collecting dust with no real relevance, no real compulsion to open it up, to read it, to explore it. Uh, there's no real indifference to it. There's no real like anger, I should say, towards it. But there is uh, a real lack of enthusiasm for it. And again, I, I totally understand it because it's very easy to think about a 2,000 to 3,500 to 4,000-year-old book as having nothing to do with your life today, right now, here in San Luis Obispo or on the Central Coast, 2018. Totally get it. So what we've been trying to do even further is explore this bigger theme and or question. So what I want to look at today is the bigger question is what is the Bible? In fact, um, let, me, let me pause real fast and just say if you guys need a Bible right now, this would be a good segue to raise your hands. We would love to get you guys a Bible. We have ushers that have been super patient and they're awesome. They've been ready to give you guys a Bible. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we have ushers that would love to get you a Bible. So we want to look at the question today, which is really what is the Bible? What is the Bible? I, I really believe that in a lot of ways there's a lot of confusion as to what the Bible is. And I think this is a problem. Because if we have false considerations or false ideas or even false expectations as to what the Bible is, then it, that will shade how we approach it. 
And not only that, when we begin to discover certain things about the Bible, we might feel really put off or frustrated or disenchanted by this book and become sort of a agnostic or even an atheist. So in other words, the way that many of us think about the scripture could actually be sort of an interesting mixture of agnosticism waiting to happen at best or a crisis in faith, crisis in faith at worst because of the various and variety of expectations that we place upon the scripture. So what I would like to do this morning is to try to answer the question, like, what is the Bible? And try to do some exploration as to what scripture even itself says the Bible is. Again, this may sound like a basic question, but I think it's really important for us to really get a bigger picture as to what we can expect from this book. So what I want to do first is I want to pray, and then I'm actually going to show you a, another Bible project video, which we've been showing for a while. Again, like I said, we've been in a series uh, as a church, reading through the Bible. So if you've been doing that, uh, you should be somewhere around, I don't know, Exodus 15, 16, 17, somewhere around there today. So as we make our way through, we finish the book of Genesis. We're in the book of Exodus now. So the guys uh, from the Bible Project, they've produced all these videos. We've told you guys about these uh, oftentimes. They have a great website just called uh, thebibleproject.com. There's, uh, I don't know even how many dozens and dozens of videos that are available. Uh, this is a video series from uh, really one in which they have, in which they unpack the bigger question as to what is the Bible. In fact, the video that you're going to watch is actually called What is the Bible? So I'll let them uh, show the video, and then I will jump right in as soon as I'm done watching the video. We'll pray. We'll try to tackle this question. Sound good? Here's the video. The Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry. They were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand-year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple. But eventually, they were conquered by the Babylonians, who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. 
Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this Second Temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh. And they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament. But what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We've got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But... How does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. Cliffhangers, don't you love them? Anyways, you guys can actually uh, shortcut that and watch the videos yourself, so that's fine. Um, I want to jump right in, and I'm going to pray first, and then we're going to get to work trying to tackle and understand a little bit more in detail this uh, larger question, uh, what is the Bible? So let's pray. God, thank you for our time together here. God, at the end of the day, what we uh, want more than anything is not just data. It's not information. Information, data, as valuable as it may be, does not ultimately thaw out our cold heart or free us from sin or habits that are destructive to ourselves and others. It doesn't make us into better people, people that love you more, people that love others more, people that are concerned about the affairs and the brokenness of other people. God, what we need more than anything is hearts that are transformed. So Jesus, I pray that for many of us, uh, this path right now would help, if anything, remove rubble 
or roadblocks or myths or false assumptions. And God, in its place, bring forth just a vision of clarity as to who you are and how you've made yourself known. And God, for others of us, I I pray that our hearts would just be um, awakened to the beauty that's in this radically diverse and ancient and yet living and breathing and authoritative book we call the Bible. So we just commit this time in your hands, pray that you'd help me to be able to communicate and articulate um, your words um, that you desire to speak to our hearts here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with basically a, uh, a picture, or at least I want to start with a, a definition, and I think it might be a good place to start. So the way I would describe like what is the Bible, this is something I've put together with, from a handful of teachings that I've heard recently, and just kind of my own like take and mixture and version of it. Um, so this is what I came up with, and I want to describe it. So we'll actually take each of these points bit by bit. We'll look at them in three parts, and then wrap. call this a wrap today. So number one, uh, the way this kind of plays out is the Bible is a human-slash-divine library of books which together tell a unified story of God's redemption. I'll say it again. The Bible is a human-slash-divine library of books which together tell a unified story of God's redemption. Ultimately, we know, uh, as followers of Jesus, leading to Jesus himself. Jesus is the climax of the entire biblical narrative, as the video pointed out, and as we've, as if you've been around here for any like time, you know that we always describe. So let's take each of these bit by bit and look at them. Before we jump into that, I want to, well, I'll just start by number one. Number one is, we'll look at the phrase, human slash divine. So this is a unique way of describing the scriptures, human slash divine. Uh, what you see up here is a famous drawing, um, and it's one of those drawings that's basically an optical illusion and or a uh, visual paradox. And so those of you that are familiar with this guy's writings or drawings, I should say, he draws in these kind of like strange ways where the question is like two hands, which hand drew which hand first? That's, that's the big question. And in some ways, I think it's kind of a, uh, uh, a, an apt way to describe scripture because on the one hand, um, scripture is both human, meaning people wrote it, and it's divine, meaning it, it comes from God. We believe that God was with the movement and the working and the writing and the outwriting of these things that we call the Bible or the scripture. So that shouldn't be scandalous for some. So what you oftentimes find in either right-leaning types of churches or very strong left-leaning churches is you have either an emphasis on one of these others. One, you have this overemphasis upon it's, it came from heaven, as Tim Mackey, the guy who does the Bible Project, describes. He uses an analogy that a lot of people, some people tend, tend to think of the Bible as being golden tablets that fell out of heaven and that we have this unified book that is absolutely 100% without flaw or error and there's no questions whatsoever. That is this book that we have. And the fact of the matter is, it, it didn't fall out of heaven. It didn't fall out of the sky. What, what's actually, we call the Bible is something far more complex and far more beautiful, actually. In fact, other religions, there are other religions, I, think, I would think that uh, uh, Mormonism for one, as well as Islam for another, they actually take more of a golden tablets approach, that scripture came from directly from God, perhaps through an agent, but for the most part, this idea is that golden tablets approach, that this is the unquestioned reality. And so on the one hand, you lean so heavily upon this divine side that any talk of human involvement is actually kind of a dirty secret. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to discuss. Um, and there is sort of an apologetic approach towards the fact that 
human involvement is involved with it. The flip side of this is to focus so much upon the human element that, in other words, the Bible is really not a book from God. It's more of a book that's composed and compiled by human beings. It's full of flaws, full of contradictions, full of error. It can't be trusted. You can't devote your heart and mind and soul to it. It's ancient. It shouldn't be trusted. And so there's this tendency to focus on one human element or the other, this soul divine element. And in fact, Throughout Christian history, in fact, I would even go so far as to say throughout even Jewish history, there has been, in other words, predating Christianity, there has been sort of something far more nuanced to define or describe how the Bible would be viewed. And this is the way I would describe it here, is this human slash divine element. It's both human and divine. You say that sounds like a paradox. In some ways, it's exactly what it is. It's a paradox. Uh, not necessarily contradictory, but both true. And a lot of scholars would like to kind of describe it this way, that there is a way which you can think about this in what scholars would describe as an incarnational model. Now, I realize some of the words I'm using here today and ideas and concepts that we're going to be covering are like geek, Bible geek 101. So for both of you that like this type of stuff, um, you're welcome. The rest of you, just I'm going to do my best to try to help you like, like, like it at least, um, to be amazed by it. Again, uh, I, I confess, I'm a total Bible nerd. I have... I got saved when I was around 16 years old. Someone gave me a Bible. I mentioned the story a little bit last week. And from day one, I was given a Bible. I just, I, I picked it up. I read it. I couldn't stop reading it. I loved reading the scriptures. A brand new Christian, someone turned me on to, have you guys ever heard of Firefighters for Christ? Anybody old enough to remember that? Firefighters for Christ? All right, there's this thing down in Orange County. I grew up in Orange County in Huntington Beach area. And it, literally, Firefighters for Christ was right down the street from my house, like two blocks away. So I, I show up there, and they, they made these things, like some of you have no idea what they are. They're called cassette tapes. <laughs> cassette tapes. And uh, I'd show up there, and the first time I showed up, there's there a bunch of really, really older people that are working there. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know if they've ever seen, like, a younger guy, but when I walked in, they were like, oh, honey, you want some fruitcake? And, you know, they, they loved me. They were so stoked that I was there. I was a young guy, 16 years old. I just got my driver's license. And I show up, and, and they're like, so happy that you're here. You should come back again. And, like, you want any tapes? I'm like, I'll take tapes. And they literally gave me, like, 100 tapes. I didn't know. I, going home, I'm, I have this box full of 100 cassette tapes. And I begin listening to them. Again, I'm 16 years old, maybe five months old as a Christian, if that. And it wasn't until years later I come to find out that Firefighters for Christ was donation operated. I didn't give him a dime. I walked away with hundreds of cassette tapes in my hand and I'm like, this is amazing. I got all stuff for free. And then I was find out later, I'm like, oh, you're supposed to give a donation or like, anyways, I went back and I gave like five bucks. Anyways, the point of the matter, as a young kid, I had no idea how or how to value this type of stuff. But I, I began just listening to teachings on the Bible, I could not stop. I was literally, you can even say it was like an addiction, right? Nerd out slash addiction. But the point that I would make is this, is I, I hope to somehow paint a picture for you that the Bible is compelling. It's beautiful. It's nuanced. It's not just this book that flew out of heaven, nor is it this book that is somehow stained and marred and messed up. So it's back to this concept what I would describe as this incarnational model. So if you want to think about this in another context, think about Jesus. So is Jesus fully divine or fully human? Yes. The traditional, historical answer to that is yes, both. Fully God, fully man. How do you explain that? I have no idea. That's, that's how scripture identifies. That's how the writers of Jesus describe him, both fully God 
and yet fully human somehow combined. And this is the way we would see the Bible. And this, this matters. This matters to see the Bible as both human and divine. Because here's the problem. If you see the Bible as nothing but divine without any human involvement or intervention, a, number A, you know, letter A, I should say number A, uh, inconsistent. Letter A is that it, it goes against the very speaking in the Bible about how this thing came to be. So in other words, the other element of just seeing the Bible as nothing more than golden tablets come down from heaven is that that mentality is literally a crisis in faith waiting to happen the moment you take religion 101 in your freshman year of college. Because you're going to have someone that's going to completely dismember and destroy scripture. You're going to be like, I don't know what I believe anymore. Because you had this false assumption that the Bible is this book that fell out of heaven and then when they begin to show forth certain evidence and facts of scribal errors and things that throughout history have changed in the transmutation and uh, reordering and the writing of and copying of this ancient document. But here's the thing. It's far more nuanced, far more beautiful than that. Here's the point that I would describe. Again, it is both human and divine in its origin. So what do I mean by that? Let's, let's go on. So the Bible's word for describing this is what we would use in 2 Timothy. I got a passage for this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. The word there for breathed out by God is theokinousos. It's the idea of God breathed. It involves God's direct connection or out-breathing upon those writers and authors of this scripture to communicate. And therefore, Paul, who's writing it, says it's profitable. And the rest of the scripture is really a great passage, but I just want to focus on this fact that the way that we have historically seen the Bible is that it's breathed out by God, that God has been involved in this very process. A New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, says this on the subject of inspiration. What does that mean? He describes it this way. Inspiration is a shorthand way of talking about the belief that his spirit, God's spirit, God guided the very different writers and editors so that the books they produced were the books of God, were the books God intended for his people to have. And he's a great way of describing this. Tim Keller, next slide, has also another great quote. He goes on and says this. He says, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. So, which leads me to the next thing that I want to look at. Now, let me say one final thing. If you want more information, again, if the idea of the human and divine interplay that's going on there left way more questions for you than what in my time frame am able to answer, I want to direct you some excellent resources that I would consider probably some of the best. So I think I have a little slide for that Tim Mackey. Okay, so check this out. So on timmackey.com, he's the guy that is the theologian and the main voice in all the Bible Project videos. Uh, he's a... Bible scholar slash brother slash nerd as well, up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he's a pastor at a church up there called Door of Hope, and he's a on-staff scholar at um, Western Seminary. So go to timmackey.com. I just listened this past week, this uh, entire series called The Bible in the Making. It's really lengthy, but it's so, so good. He also has downloads that you can check out with all sorts of references and scriptures and backstory to all of this. The point that I would make is this that the Bible is not scandalous. What we hold in our hands, we can fully 100% recognize has been carefully handed down to us, that God has been 
in this process. We don't have to have doubts. We don't have to have worries or fears. We don't have to somehow think that it's scandalous, that there's a human element to this, that the Bible was not somehow constructed by a bunch of men with long white beards in some back you know, uh, area of a big, large manor or house, the way Dan Brown would kind of portray in the Da Vinci Code, that this stuff, it's myth. It's myth. It's fanciful myth. There is no validity. Uh, there are good answers to address many of the major uh, um, opponents, or those that are, I should say, in opposition to uh, the writing of the Bible, that there are great scholarly works that are available for you guys. So again, if, if in any way, shape, or form, if you're somebody that is, number one, you're interested in learning this stuff even more fully, check this out. If you are somebody that's a skeptic, you're like, eh, I'm not really sure. Or if you're hearing what I'm saying, you're like, I believe in the Bible, but I'm not really sure exactly what you're saying, Brian. You're very confusing right now. Um, then I would say, Go here, because again, this will help answer a lot of maybe some, or at least fill in some of the blanks that I'm not addressing for you right now. So I got to move on to the very next one, but highly recommend checking out this Bible in the Making teaching series. It's well, it'll be well worth your time if that idea or paradigm fits any of you guys. Second thing that I want to jump on is asking the question, like what, what is the Bible in terms of a library of books? What is the Bible in terms of this being a library of books? This is another really helpful way of thinking about the scriptures. Because here's the thing. We oftentimes call the Bible the Bible. Uh, trivia. Did, did you know the Bible never refers to the Bible as the Bible? Ever? So the question is, where do, we, where do we even get the word that we use exclusively to describe the Bible? Some would say, well, the word. Um, I have the word. Um, I want to hear the word preached. And that's not a bad way of thinking about it, nor do I think it's bad to even refer to the Bible as the Bible. So it's fine. I'm just saying there's that even the phrase or the word the Bible is one that is not even found in the Bible. And the word that's typically used for the word, right, is actually a phrase that's used to describe Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the word. He's the word of God that's been manifested. God come amongst us. So what is the Bible? One of the best and most helpful ways that I've I've come to understand the Bible is being a library of books. It's, so what you're holding in your hands, if you've got an actual leather-bound book or a fake leather-bound book or a hard-bound book or an app in your hand, what you're actually holding is a library of 66 books written by multiple authors over a very, very long period of time on several different continents. But each one of them tells this one main unified story that's God-breathed that it can be trusted and be completely given our hearts and minds over to and our authority over to, ultimately. But the point of the matter is it's a library of books. So one of the ways I believe that this is helpful is to basically begin to see how this library of books breaks down. So another way of thinking about this is that when we read the Bible, we have to ask the question, what type of literature or genre are we reading? So why this is helpful is because if you were to go into a library, an actual library, and go into, I don't know, the comic book section, I'll come to this in a second. In the comic book section, um, you're going to read a comic book different, differently than how you read a cookbook. So most of us, you're not going to sit down and read a cookbook or, and, and scrutinize every little detail of it. Nor if you're going to read a story like The Hunger Games or some other type of novel or Star Wars or whatever, you're not going to necessarily highlight it, right, or look up various words in the original languages or try to understand certain etymological backstories of certain words um, because... When you read a story, you want to be swept up in the story, or poetry. You're not going to read a poet and, or, a, or a poem and somehow assume that this is 100% literal. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. 
who, who was Humpty Dumpty? Like, what type of egg was he? Like, ostrich? Duck? Uh, I mean, what, what type of literal? I mean, you don't ask questions. Like, you don't read that and be like, is this literal or is this metaphor? It's, it's a story. It's a poem. And no one gets hung up on that. But what happens oftentimes is people ask the question, should the Bible be taken 100% literally? And here's the way I like to answer that question. Is it's, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced, and oftentimes you have to answer it. Is the answer is depends upon what type of genre you're reading. It depends upon what type of story it's written in. Because, for example, there are passages in the Psalms that use poetic language to describe, and the trees will clap their hands. So is that literal? Will trees literally clap their hands? Or is this metaphor to describe a beautiful day in the future when one day... King Jesus is going to be exalted for all that he is worth by all of his creation. Is, is this just a beautiful, poetic way to describe something that's fantastic? It's amazing. So here's the point that I would make. Is someone would describe it this way. That rather than reading the Bible with 100% literalness. Because I would even go so far as to say this. Is that those that would say, well, we, we, we read the Bible literally. Nobody actually really reads the Bible literally. Nobody. I'll just, I mean, again, talk about dark, dirty little secrets. Those that would claim we read the Bible literally really don't read the Bible literally because there's lots of passages in the Bible that you do not actually live according to. So either we are in constant violation of these things or we are not reading the Bible rightly. So, so again, some would say rather than reading the Bible literally, you read the Bible literarily, meaning according to its particular literary genre or background. So what that means, so when the Bible is narrative, yeah, you read it as a story. You read it for what it's worth. It's, it's real. It happened. It's literal. When you read other passages that are like poetry, and the Bible is actually filled with poetry, you read it for what it's worth. You try to understand the metaphor beneath or under, uh, uh, behind the actual language that's being used. So that would be helpful to understand some of the literary types in the Bible. And some have done scholarly research on this and kind of broken down this nice little pie chart for you. So if you want to think about literary genres in the Bible, you have this. Uh, so the largest being narrative. So 44% or 502 chapters in the entire Bible are basically classified as narrative. It's a storyline, story, telling of a character, telling of a uh, conflict, and telling of some form of resolve. So it's narrative, just the way that we would understand or think about narrative. Uh, 20, or should I say 33% is poetry. Now this type of poetry would not only involve like actual classical type poems, it would also include what we would call prophetic literature. So for example, like Jeremiah or Isaiah, they use uh, poetry to describe uh, in prophetic language a word that God is speaking or communicating to a group of people at a particular time. And sometimes that particular time uh, overlaps into a future period of time, maybe even our time right now. But again, it takes uh, discipline to read the Bible in a proper context. Uh, thirdly is what's described as discourse. Uh, that's 23%. So this is, for example, discourse meaning someone, like, for example, a lot of the New Testament is written in discourse. So Paul will say, in light of Jesus' uh, life, death, resurrection, therefore we as followers of Jesus are to, therefore, follow these certain uh, examples and steps as, so in other words, uh, one plus one equals two, and it's, it's more methodical. So if we read the entire Bible as nothing more than discourse, in other words, examples to be followed, then what will happen is that we will, use, mis, I would say, misuse the Bible. We would not use the Bible for what it was intended. So let me give you another example of this. So if you read the Old Testament and you read certain characters of the Bible, Noah, 
or Abraham, and you use them as nothing more than character studies to look at and say, how can I and how should I follow these Bible characters? How should I live my life in accordance to their life? Um, I would say, I'd suggest even, that for the most part, we're actually missing the point of what the scripture is used for. So our aim is to not follow their example. My goodness, a lot of these guys don't follow their example. They're really, really bad people to follow. But you are, at the same time, to see yourself in them. So in other words, you think of Abraham, even though he is the father of the faith, and even though in the book of Hebrews it emulates and, and talks about his actions of faith, and in the book of Hebrews it describes, in a sense, uh, we have this hall of faith, people that we look at. Um, much of Abraham's life is not to be emulated. Much of Abraham's life is not to be followed. I mean, there's moments in Abraham's life in which he does not faithfully honor God. With, but the point of the matter is, is we're to look at the life of Abraham and see ourselves in Abraham. In other words, that in spite of moments, even when Abraham was faithless, so you and I, in moments of being faithless, God still remains faithful. So in other words, the main character in the story always goes back to God. So there's a lot of other support roles or bit players within the overarching narrative. We would call these characters like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. So hopefully this makes a little bit of sense in thinking a little bit further about some of this library of books. Another slide he mentioned in the video is um, what's typically called the Tanakh. I thought I'd just show this again just for the sake of it. The, the law, the writings, and the prophets. This is a common way of describing the Old Testament. In fact, you even see this very phrase uh, being used in the New Testament where there are occasions where it describes the Old Testament as being the law and the writings of the prophets. So that particular word is the word Tanakh, and as they described it, breaking down right there like that as well. So I want to move on to the last one. We'll wrap this up. Which finally, it's again, it's going back to the overall definition. So the Bible is a human, divine library of books, which leads us to the very last phrase, which is together tell the story of God's redemption. Tell the story of God's redemption. So this is the main overarching idea behind the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, is that God is up to something in this world. That in spite of the human wreckage that people have done within relationships between each other on a horizontal level and on a vertical relationship between them and God, as well as to this world, the environments we live in. God has not cast off humanity. God has not wiped us out. God has not abandoned us. God is actually intricately involved in the broken, messed up, dysfunctional affairs of humanity to put things back to right. This is, this is what we see. God doing all the time in these cycles all throughout the Bible. And it climaxes. The book of the, the entire Bible climaxes in what's described as a new heavens and a new earth in which Yahweh resides over, in which Jesus is the ultimate character, the ultimate victor over all things, the ultimate king. So it's a story that tells of God's redemption all the way through. So here's trivia. I thought it'd be kind of fun to do this. Where in the Bible or what is the very first mention in the Bible of the writing of the Bible? Right, trivia. What's the first mention in the Bible of the writing of the Bible? Anybody? Exodus, good, good guess. Yes, you're, you're right, actually, on the Exodus, so you got, you got the book, right? So here's the thing. Um, it's interesting, because as you read through the Bible, there are moments in the Bible where it actually says, hey, let's write this whole thing down. So what you have up until this point are stories being handed down, oral tradition. So again, back then, they didn't have... Facebook or YouTube to waste, you know, five hours of our day on. Um, and they had more meaningful things to do with their time, so they would tell stories. they tell stories of, of God and God's involvement as they were passed down from, you know, dad, 
from grandpa, from great-grandpa, from great-grandma to many, many, many generations past. And they would retell these stories. And so what we have here is the Bible's very first mention in Scripture saying, let's write this down. Let's keep a collection of truths and realities and stories to basically write this whole thing down. So check this out. I'll I'll read a handful of these uh, passages to you. Uh, You can listen, check them out. So in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And then the story is God basically rescuing the people of Israel. Um, it's the story when they're fighting, they're in a battle, and Abraham, or I'm sorry, uh, Moses' hands are raised, and as long as his hands are raised, the, they, they win the battle. As his hands fall, they, they lose. And Joshua comes on the scene, and he holds up his hands, if you remember that story. And uh, at the very end of that whole ordeal, God actually says, hey, write this down. And there's a reason. He actually tells us, he tells us the very reason why write this down as a memorial. Did you know that? So the Bible is actually telling us what the Bible is there for. It's a memorial. It's a way to remember, to recall what God is up to in this world. So why, why read the Bible? I'd suggest, first of all, every one of us have consistent amnesia. We forget. We lose sight of. Our, our bandwidth shrinks when we, when we spend a lot of time on trivial facts and data and information and memes and things that make no have no consequential effect upon our lives. Our, our band, it's, it's, the, the vast amount of information is like info porn. It desensitizes us to meaningful content. Right? Did you agree with that? Desensitizes us. So when we do nothing but feed our minds with our constant stream of Instagram, there, there is a desensitization that happens where any meaningful content, stuff that's actually substantial, stuff that actually has any weight or substance or matter to your life becomes minimized. And the way we break that cycle is we re-engage with the story that God says, write this down, retell it, be swept back up into it, be restored. I like that word restored. I have no idea if this word even has any connection to it, but in my mind it does, so therefore it must be fact. Uh, Restoried restoried, put back into the story, reminded of what God is up to in this world, reminded that we are, we are not forsaken. You are not forsaken. No matter how broken, messed up, or ruined, or how much you have made a mess of your own life, you are not forsaken by God. How do we know this? Well, this, the story tells us this. We're just like Abraham and his flaws, and Moses, and his brokenness, and all these other bit players in the characters of the story, just as broken, yet God over and over again recycles his grace and kindness as he re-involves himself. Another mention of this, I'll read it real quickly, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 24, it says this, when Moses had finished writing the words of the law, so this is the time when Moses receives the word of God, he's writing the word of the law. I'm going to skip forward again to one other one in the book of Jeremiah. This is, this is a really interesting one, by the way, really interesting one. So if you're familiar with the writings of Jeremiah, he was a prophet, he was one of these guys that spoke. Uh, the words of God to the people. And there was an occasion where God tells Jeremiah, write all this stuff down. Take all your poetry, all your poems, all your prophetic words, write them down, put them in a book, and this is the book that I want to be saved and utilized for my people. And there's a guy by the name of Jehoiakim. Uh, He's a king. He hates Jeremiah. He wants to see Jeremiah killed. He actually takes the book that Jeremiah had written. 
Imagine being a writer, being a scribe, and you're writing all this data and information down, and you're trying to recollect and remember all the stuff that you had written, and now you collect it, and then you just got this guy, Jehoiakim, in one fell swoop, takes the scroll of Jeremiah and burns it. That's what happens. He burns it. But this is crazy. It goes on. and says in Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 32, Then Jeremiah took another scroll, and he gave it to Baruch, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who, wore, who, who wrote it at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that Jeremiah, the king, or that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And then it goes on to say, notice this interesting little uh, tidbit, and many similar words were also added to them. So Jeremiah's first book, apparently there were more things that God wanted to add to it. So what happened in his first book? Well, Jehoiakim destroys it. This is the human nature of the Bible, guys. But somehow, even in the midst of this, God is getting his word, his word across. It shouldn't scandalize us. If anything, it should free us to look at the fact that somehow God worked through very strange times to preserve every bit of truth and word and reality of what he wants for us to understand about himself. Because, therefore, all scriptures are given by inspiration of God. God breathed, and therefore, it's profitable for our lives. So finally you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus living, breathing, doing things. As the video pointed out, that Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of the Torah. He describes, he says, not one jot, one tittle, you know, one dotting of the I, one crossing the T will pass away. All I'm come to fulfill and satisfy everything that this entire Tanakh story has set forth. And yet, as the video pointed out, Jesus dies, but rises again. And then his followers see him resurrected. And then Jesus says to his disciples, he says, listen, all authority in heaven and earth, all authority, how, how much authority is that? Well, in heaven and earth, it pretty much describes like everything. He said, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Retell the story. Retell the things that I've done. Question, again, pop quiz. Did Jesus write any books? None that we're aware of. Was an author. How do we know about what Jesus did? His faithful followers recorded these stories. Upon whom Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now you go and you retell the story of all these things. So what you have is the first four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each one of them telling their own unique personalized account of the life and biographical form of the life of Jesus. The book of Acts, as he describes, is a story of Jesus' people going into all this world. What you have, the rest of the New Testament, like the books of Paul, these are stories, these are, I should say, these are books that are intended to help you and I to wrestle with, to think about how to be faithful followers of Jesus in Corinth, in Philippi, and in San Luis Obispo. Like, that's, that's the whole point of this. How to be faithful followers of Jesus. But here's the pop quiz question. Guys, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, who do we as followers of Jesus give our ultimate allegiance to? The Bible? Jesus. Where's the Bible come in? Well, we follow the Bible and trust the Bible because Jesus says it's trustworthy. Does that make sense? Our ultimate allegiance is to the one who came from heaven to earth to bear your sin, your shame, your guilt, your brokenness, your mess, and mine died, suffered, 
rose again from the dead and said, I breathe upon you new life. Receive from me what I have given to you. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all creation and proclaim the good news. So our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. But we trust scripture because Jesus says it's trustworthy. At the end of the day, guys, I can't convince you the Bible is trustworthy. I can just give you the information, the data. I can point you in a direction as to information that can help you further untie some of these knots that you might have in your thinking about Scripture. I can help point you in a direction to help remove some of the roadblocks and barriers. But at the end of the day, the big issue is not in the collection of data or lack of data. It's not an issue at the end of the day of thinking or intellect. It's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of trust and confidence. Do we see Christ as the ultimate authority over our lives? The one who came and suffered and died and rose again for you and I. Do we see Christ in that context? Christianity is always about one thing above and beyond the authority of Jesus. It's an invitation. Jesus is always inviting people to come to him to lay aside the baggage, the hurt, pain, and to trust him, to allow him to do something with that. The Bible's word for that is redeem. He doesn't necessarily erase all of that stuff, but he redeems it, uses it for his purposes and for his glory. The alternate example or, 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 or scenario for us is to choose a path of our own making. The invitation of scripture is to trust the God who made us and who preserved this story in what we call the Bible. It's trustworthy, totally trustworthy. It's God-breathed. So, this is an invitation to you to do business with God. I want to wrap this up. Why don't we all stand? Let's respond as we always do each week by way of taking communion. It's a way of reminding us that these symbols of bread in the cup, which, by the way, we, we, we dip the bread in. We, we, don't, we don't do this. We, we dip, don't, don't sip, say it that way, don't sip. Um, it's a way of reminding us of the invitation of Christ for us to come trust him, to trust what he's done, to receive the grace that he offers. We'll respond by singing. We'll also respond by praying. So as we sing, if you feel as if there's scenarios in your life where you just need to get before Jesus, there's some rugs in the front here for you to partake of communion and then just get on your knees and to respond to him in worship and affection and allowing him to have full allegiance, authority over you, over your life, over your past, over your future, and over your present. So let me pray. Let's respond. Jesus, thank you for your love and we sing to you now in response.